Our passage this morning is Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 36. Luke 6, 27 to 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. For the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. For the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you for your eternal and holy love. For Lord, as we read that in your light we see light, also in your love we see love. Lord God, we praise you for your intimate love. Lord, for your infinite love that you have poured out upon us in Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, as we see your command here to love even our enemies, Lord, we realize that we fall woefully short of this command. We fall woefully short of your perfect and holy standard of love. But Lord, we pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you will enlighten our eyes to your love. We pray that you will reveal to us what you are calling us to do, that you would reveal to us that you are the perfect and holy example of all of these commands. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to flee from our self-righteousness, to flee from our self-guided and self-centered attempts to obey you, and that we will look to you. Lord, give us the strength Fill us with your love so that we might be able to love others from the love that you have given us. For we pray this in your holy, majestic name. Amen. I hope you've heard of Cory ten Boom, the Dutch Christian who was helping and hiding Jews and the Dutch resistance from the Nazis during the occupation of Holland during World War II. If you know of Corrie ten Boom and her family, you know that a Nazi collaborator informed on her family that the Gestapo raided her home, that Corrie's father, Casper, was sent to the Schwegen prison where he died nine days later, and that Corrie and her sister, Betsy, were sent to the Ravensbrück concentration camp, that Corrie managed to survive, but the frail Betsy died just months before liberation, being beaten to death by an SS guard. 
I hope you know what happened when Corey went back to Germany two years after the war, traveling through to different churches to speak on forgiveness. How a man approached her after her talk, and, and she says, that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with a skull and crossbones. This man who was approaching her had been an SS guard in Ravensbrück. This man approached her, not recognizing her, saying to her, a fine, me a fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. He continued, you mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk. I was a guard there. But since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. Will you forgive me? And the man thrust out his hand to shake her hand. But Corey stood there with coldness clutching her heart. She knew, she understood that forgiveness was not an emotion. That forgiveness was an act of the will. And that the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. And so she cried out to Jesus for help. And then when she willed herself by the work of the God and her Holy uh, the God, the Holy Spirit in her heart to forgive this man, she felt the warmth of God flood her soul, bringing tears to her eyes. And she cried out, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. How could Corey Ten Boom do that? How could Corey Ten Boom forgive a man who had committed such evil against her and against so many others? How could she forgive a man who was responsible, at least indirectly, for the death of her sister? How could she forgive such a man? And how could she love such a man? Now, this man had repented. But how would Corey Ten Boom respond towards someone who had not repented? What was her responsibility towards someone who was unrepentant? How would she respond towards someone who was unrepentant? Well, many years later, she had the opportunity to find out. In 1970, over 20 years later, a visitor came to see her. And she had testified of the way that, that she had problems forgiving her friends who had let her down. And so this man asked her about, about, these, about these individuals. And she said that, that she admitted smugly. Well, you can see that all is forgiven. He said, by you, yes. But what about them? Have they accepted your forgiveness? And Corey replied, they say there's nothing to forgive. They deny that it ever happened. But I can prove it. And so she went eagerly to her desk and opened the drawer and went to pull out letters that she had proving that these people had sinned against her. And so her visitor asked, aren't you the one whose sins are at the bottom of the sea? And are the sins of your friends etched in black and white? And in that moment, Corey realized the unforgiveness that was in her heart. And so she said, Lord Jesus, who takes all my sins away, forgiving me and preserving all these years, then for me, preserving all these years, the evidence against others. Give me grace to burn all the black and whites as a sweet-smelling sacrifice to your glory. 
She said that that night she couldn't sleep until she opened the drawer, took out those letters, and threw them into her coal fire. And she said, as the flames leapt and glowed, so did my heart. So here's this woman who had demonstrated by the grace of God so powerfully the ability to forgive someone who had, had, had really tortured her and tortured her sister. Her enemy. But her enemy who had repented. And yet she found it so difficult to forgive a friend who had wronged her and had not repented. Theologians differ as to whether you need to forgive an unrepentant sinner. But either way, there is no question. Whether or not you are to forgive the unrepentant sinner, it's clear you must love the unrepentant sinner. Even the unrepentant sinner who has sinned against you, you must love your enemies. The command to love your enemies is one of the hardest commands in all of Scripture. It's not hard because it's hard to understand. It's not hard because it's controversial. It's hard because it's hard. The only command I believe that is harder in the scripture to, to obey is the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That sums up the first table of the law. Well, this one sums up the second table of the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This comes from Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the son of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, the Jews had a very different idea as to who one's neighbor was. For the Jews, that meant one who was like them, other Jews. But what Jesus is saying here is that the love and the standard of love that you are commanded to goes much deeper. It's the command even to love your enemies. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 36 is paralleled in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. Let me read it for us. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and, makes the rain, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you can see that the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain are similar, but there is enough differences that Luke 6, verses 27 to 36, appears to be a different sermon. Although the same essential truth, love for enemies, is being presented, is being presented in distinct ways. Again, it's not surprising that Jesus would cover similar material on different occasions. The command to love is central to the message of the kingdom of God. As we'll see through Luke and Acts, this principle is regularly repeated in the teaching of Jesus and is also echoed in the teaching of the apostles. It's a common theme in the epistles as well. If you remember from last week, verses 20 to 26 of Luke chapter, chapter 6 describes disciples, those who are blessed, as opposed to those who are cursed, those who are not true disciples. Now in the passage before this morning, before us this morning, Jesus moves specifically into teaching on love. But this passage is not unrelated to the Beatitudes. 
Whereas that section in the, describes the describes the citizen of the rather describes the citizens of the kingdom, this section describes the ethics of the kingdom. It describes the behavior of kingdom citizens. The disciples' love must extend beyond love to family and love to friends. The disciples' love must go beyond the love of that the world displays. The disciples' love must reflect the very love of God. As we'll see in this passage, Jesus' command to love has many applications, and each is presented as an imperative. You must. So first of all, in verses 27 to 31, you must love your enemies. Verses 32 to 34, you must love better than sinners. And in verses 35 and 36, you must love like God. So first of all, verses 27 to 31, you must love your enemies. Again, here Jesus is demonstrating the ethic of his kingdom. Love is central. But the love that Jesus commands goes far beyond natural love, the love that we, ex- that we naturally express towards family and friends. Jesus is commanding far greater love, love for your enemies. So verse 27 begins, But I say to you who hear. Jesus is speaking. Jesus is speaking to those who are listening. Remember from verse 18, that many came to hear him. Well, what does it mean to hear? What does it mean to hear Jesus? It doesn't just mean to hear his, his words. When, when somebody's giving me directions on how to get somewhere, I, I listen intently. At least I, I try to listen very intently. But after the first couple of turns, when it starts to get complicated, all I hear is wah, 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 like a teacher from a Charlie Brown cartoon. I hear the words, but the words are lost to me. Those words leave me lost, unable to get me where I want to go. But even reading the Bible can be like that, right? Sometimes even reading the Bible, we we set out to read the Bible. We set out to hear what the Word is saying, but Scripture becomes wah, 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 wah. Now, I'm not being irreverent here. The problem is not with Scripture. The problem was with us. Listen to the word of God. So what then does it mean to hear? Well, remember that Jesus is primarily addressing his disciples. Verse 20. The oft-repeated command in scripture is he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus' sheep hear his voice. Are you listening? Disciples, listen. Hearing is not just about listening, but doing. Disciples listen and disciples obey. So then what does Jesus say? What is he telling us to do? Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Jesus gives this command and then he gives seven applications, all in the imperative, followed by the cardinal and comprehensive golden rule. Each command, again, is in the present tense. The sense is that there is to be a continual attitude of heart, standing ready to love in the ways that he talks about here. So again, love your enemies. Well, the enemies that are in view here are, first of all, spiritual enemies. People who are your enemies because of the gospel. 
But it's not just those kinds of enemies. You need to love those who are your enemies for other reasons too. Whether it's because you've sinned against them or whether it's because you've, they've sinned against you, you still need to love them. In the former case, those who you've sinned against, this loving them means asking them for forgiveness and by God's grace, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. And when it comes to the latter, those who are, have sinned against you, it means continuing to, Romans 12, 18, if possible, as far as depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, Paul is saying this here as part of an extended admonition to genuine love in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. And he says there that love towards enemies means not repaying evil for evil, Romans 12, 17. Never seeking vengeance, Romans 12, 19. Now, in this passage, uh, Paul is using the term agape for love. Jesus uses the same word, which the, the Lunita lexicon defines as to have love for someone or something based on sincere appreciation and high regard. Leon Morris explains it refers to the love of the unlovely, love which is not drawn out by merit in the beloved, but which proceeds from the fact that the lover chooses to be a loving person. But before you report me to D.A. Carson for committing an exegetical fallacy, let me here include a footnote. Agape most often refers to that kind of love. The word is also used sometimes for, for very selfish forms of, of love in the Septuagint. But in this context, in Jesus' teaching here, Morris defi Morris's definition is quite apropos. The disciple loves not because the, the recipient deserves it, but because the lover chooses to love. You choose to love even your enemies because of Jesus. Daryl Bach says that now that as Jesus goes on here into his first application, do good to those who hate you, he says, Bach says that in speaking of doing good, Jesus shows that he has in mind more than intellectual, passive attitude of love towards the one who opposes God's people. Rather, active love is in view. So in other words, it's not enough to refrain from vengeance or retaliation. It's not enough to do nothing. Rather, you are to do good to actively do good to your enemies. Now this command isn't new to the New Testament. We find this principle in the Old Testament as well. Exodus 23, 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. And Proverbs 21 to 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, the Apostle Paul quotes this in Romans 12.20, part of his admonition to general love, genuine love that I mentioned a moment ago from, from Romans 12. Heaping burning coals here is not sadistically shoving coals onto somebody's head with a fiendish laugh saying, Wahahaha! It's, it's, I don't even think this is about, about adding, wanting to add to someone's torment in hell. Rather, this is a hope that the burning shame upon that person when you are loving them for being unkind to you will lead to penitence or even conversion or at least to a change in their evil behavior. This is overcoming evil with good. In the Didache, 
1-3, for your part, love those who hate you, and you will have no enemy. Regardless of, of how they treat you, because of the love that you express to them, in your heart at least, they are not your enemy. Ultimately, your responsibility is for you. How they respond to you is between them and God. But by God's grace, love those who hate you. Now, Jesus did this, didn't he? Jesus did this perfectly. I could cite many examples of Jesus doing this. But one that comes to mind is in the Garden of Gethsemane. When the, the servant of the high priest comes to, address, to, to arrest Jesus, and Peter takes out a sword and, and lops off the guy's ear. What does Jesus do? He heals the man's ear. This man was coming to arrest him, to crucify him, and Jesus heals him and even rebukes Peter for what he had done. So Jesus exemplifies love for enemy. Again, there are many, many times in the scriptures that Jesus does this. The second application, bless those who curse you. Bless those who curse you. So we're not dealing with words, with our words. Bach says that the, the idea of blessing is to invoke God's favor on another's behalf or at least to appeal to God on behalf of that person. Now that doesn't mean that you never pronounce somebody cursed because of their, be their behavior or, or rebuke someone. Jesus did that in the previous passage, didn't he? But the idea here is of, of not repaying evil for evil. 1 Peter 3.9 Do not repeat, repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called so that you may obtain a blessing. Now again, Jesus did this, didn't he? He exemplified this. Again, I think of, of the cross. Matthew 27, 44, where the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires. For he said, I'm the son of God. Now listen here, verse 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now we read about the, the two robbers, one on, the, uh, on one side of Jesus who was rebuking him and mocking him, and the other one who, was, who, who, was, who cried out to him in repentance, but it wasn't always that way. Initially, both of the robbers were mocking Jesus, were cursing Jesus. Yet to one of these robbers, Jesus declared, Today you will be with me in paradise. Luke 23, 43. The third application. Bless those who abuse you. Again, we're dealing with words. We're dealing with words. Sorry, wrong. Sorry, pray for those who abuse you. Praying for someone who has is, who is treated you or is treating you poorly is really one of the highest forms of love. Have you ever been really hurt by somebody? Have you ever been really hurt by somebody who, who really was thinking they didn't do anything wrong, that the problem was all with you? I'm sure to a certain extent all of us have faced that at one time or another. And I'm sure that, that all of us have faced at one time or another the temptation to let bitterness well up in our hearts over this. But what happened when you prayed for that person? 
What happened when you, you really, by God's grace, prayed for their good, prayed for them to be blessed, prayed for them to be even forgiven? Again, self-protection. Responding in kind. It's very natural. There's a, a strong reflex in most people to this. But what can happen is when somebody sins against you and they, and they refuse to deal with it, the issue can become so big in your mind that the issue is no longer the issue. The issue has now become how you have dealt with the issue. And when you pray for someone in a situation like that, someone who's wronged you, it helps to break through that unforgiveness barrier in you. It's a way to love someone even if the issue has not been resolved, even if the person has not repented. And once again, we have our perfect example in Jesus. Jesus did this when he prayed from the cross. When he said, Father, forgive me, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 24. Fourth application. The one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Again, this, is the, this confronts the idea of self-protection. Of self-protection. Physical self-protection. Now, the, the word that's translated cheek here usually means the jaw. Have you ever been punched in the jaw? When someone's giving you like a really good left hook to the jaw, it can knock you to your knees. And again, when that happens, the, the natural response is self-defense. It's, it's to get up and hit them back as hard as you can. Or maybe, have you ever been slapped in the face? Maybe someone's giving you the back of their hand. Not only does it hurt, but it's, 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 it's shaming you. It's shameful. And that's very possibly what Jesus was speaking about here. Now, I don't, I don't think I've ever been slapped in the face, but I had something similar happen, something that was also shameful. It was during a Christmas cantata at my church in Toronto. And at the end of the service, a fight broke out between two men that I knew. And I jumped into the fray to, to, one of the guys was wailing on the other guy, and I jumped into the fray to pull the guy off. And he turned around, and he spat in my face. It got me right in the eye. Now, when it first happened, I was in shock. I never had, any, had, never had anybody do that to me before. And it, it was, it was a really an awful feeling. Now, in my flesh, I would have retaliated at least in kind. And again, I'm not setting myself up as the example here. There are many times when I have responded in kind, not necessarily to a situation like that, but other times, at least in my heart, I've, I've done that. But as, as, I was, as I was reflecting on this, if I'd, actually, if I'd actually retaliated the way I would have normally retaliated, there's no doubt in my mind I would have been expelled from seminary. Turning the other cheek means turning the other way and actually being willing to even minister to the person. Offering yourself exposed to the person who has wronged you. Now, in this situation, by God's grace, I actually remain friends with both of these men to this day. This is what the, what the Lord has done. Again, this is not me. This is the Lord. When you're willing to minister to someone, 
when you're willing to, to love someone, to being willing, willing to, to, to help somebody who's offended by you and offended by your help, offended by your counsel, being willing to, to minister to that person even at the risk of abuse. Now, it's not, doesn't literally necessarily mean turning the other side and saying, hit me again. It means to make yourself vulnerable in the context of reaching out to help someone. Now again, this is, what, what Jesus is saying here is that we are not dependent on the ability, on our ability to protect ourselves. We are trusting ourselves to the Lord. This is Paul reaching out to the Philippian jailer with the gospel in Acts 16. But again, the ultimate example of this is Jesus when he allowed himself to be beaten mercilessly and crucified at the hands of sinful men. Fifth application. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now what Jesus is referring to here is, is obviously possessions. And it's, it's, our possessions are often very close to our hearts. Our possessions are sometimes almost as close to our hearts as our person. Jesus did teach on this in the Sermon on the Mount, but from a different context. It, there it's a legal situation in which somebody su sues you to take away your tunic as a pledge. And there he says, give him your cloak too. So there it's the guy takes your tunic and he says, give him your cloak. Now, interesting, there was a, a law in the, in the Old Testament that says you weren't allowed to take somebody's cloak as a, as a, uh, as a pledge. But here, again, Luke is saying the person takes your cloak and then you give him your tunic. You give him your undershirt as well. So the context here seems to be more about robbery. That somebody is saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that from you. And you say, it's yours. My possessions, even the, the possessions that are, are closest to me, I'm not worried about. This speaks to the, the notion that, that we, we have sometimes in our culture, the idea of, of protecting our property with our guns. Again, we are not dependent on our ability to protect ourselves or to protect our possessions. Now again, it's not saying that you shouldn't call the police if somebody steals something from you. But I, I remember so well the first time I read this passage and I was offended by it. I've talked about this before. I was, I was really troubled because it went so against the grain for me. It went so against the grain. Again, I'm the guy who if, if somebody spat in my face, I would normally retaliate 10 times more. And I went to, to a, a friend of mine who was, had been in the faith a little longer than me, and I said, I said to him, it's, it doesn't work that way. If, if somebody takes something of yours, you go and knock them over and take it back to make it even. And my friend said to me, John, it doesn't work that way. If you come across something in Scripture that you disagree with, don't try to change the Scripture to fit your thinking. Your thinking needs to change to fit Scripture. Uh, and by God's grace, I've never forgotten that lesson. God did a work in my heart that day. Yet again, Jesus provides the ultimate example of this. Think about Jesus who allowed Judas, knowing everything that was in Judas' heart. Jesus allowed Judas to hold the money bag, John 3.29, although he knew that Judas was a thief. Sixth application. Give to everyone who begs from you. Again, this is dealing with possessions. Now, some suggest this is only about, about borrowing money, and I, th I believe that is part of it, but I think the application here is wider. It includes beggars and even somebody taking something that belongs to you. 
And again, remembering back to my time in Toronto, I, I remember working through this passage and struggling through this passage because where the, the seminary was, was a, and where I lived was a, was a pretty rough part of town and, and you really couldn't walk 10 feet without a, a beggar approaching you for money. I couldn't even sit quite often on my front porch without a beggar asking me for money. And so I struggled with this in, in, in light of what I knew also from 2 Thessalonians 3.10 for as the apostle says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Jesus here is speaking of genuine needs, of, of food and shelter and clothing. It's, it's not, to give, not giving money to a homeless person who's going to turn it around and use it for, to buy drugs and alcohol or so that someone can, can pursue and maintain a vagrant lifestyle. This is a genuine need. And, and in the, the, the culture in which Jesus lived, there, there, was, there was no social safety net. People with, with disabilities and all kinds of problems depended on handouts in order, to, uh, in order to survive. This is very different from the vast majority of what we see in our culture. Now, I'm not saying we should, we should never give to someone who begs. There, there's definitely a time and place. There, there are real needs in our city, and we need to be aware of when that, that, that is the case, and we need to be actively pursuing opportunities to give to them for the glory of God. But yet again, Jesus provides the ultimate example. He did this almost constantly throughout his ministry, feeding and healing the needy. The final application from this first point, from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Again, this is dealing with your possessions. This is not seeking retribution. This is the opposite of what I was talking about from my previous attitude. It's even when something is taken away, saying, don't demand it back. 1 Corinthians 6 7 speaks of this. That he says to, ha, uh, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already defeat for you. Listen to this. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Now, in many cases, we see it as, as being shameful to be deceived by somebody. But Joshua and I were working through an issue recently. We said, which is even that we were somebody was, was looking for, for money. And we thought, which is riskier here? To be deceived? Or to, or to fail in, in serving somebody in a, in a real practical need? And by God's grace, we, we gave to that person and we probably will never see that money again. But again, it's allowing yourself because you realize that your hope is not in these, these external things. Your hope is in the Lord. You don't need to defend yourself. You don't need to defend your property because your trust is in God. And yet again, Jesus provides the ultimate example. Luke 23, 34, as the, the soldiers cast lots to divide his garments as he was crucified naked on the cross. Brothers and sisters, it is only the person who trusts Jesus particularly his sovereignty and his justice, who can even begin to do this, who can even begin to have the desire to do this. Well, this first point then closes with the golden rule. And what you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Now, many other religions have a version of this. 
but it's general, they're generally stated in the negative. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Or else it's, it's treated in a uh, reciprocity. Treat others like this, and then they will treat you like this. But what Jesus is saying here is, to my understanding, unique. He's saying, treat others well, regardless of how they treat you. That's what the context says. Treat others like this regardless of how they treat you. Now, I was talking to an individual who is um, part of a, of a group. You may have heard of it. It's called Neuro Linguistic Programming. It's actually very cultic. He said, well, I was trying to witness to him. He said, well, you Christians, you have the golden rule, but we have the platinum rule. And he says the platinum rule is that you are to treat others the way they want to be treated. He's saying, well, that's better than the golden rule. But is it better, is it better really to treat other people the way they want to be treated? Well, clearly that's not always the best way. My kids would love for them, us to serve them cookies and ice cream for breakfast. That's how they would want to be treated. But that is not the best way for us to treat them. The second commandment of, of loving your neighbor as yourself is subsumed under the first commandment. To love your Lord, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So you can't, the, the, this idea of a platinum rule that is, is somehow divorced from, from God and, and loving Him is really a lack of love. The second commandment is subsumed under the first. And in order then for us to obey the golden rule, we need to consider First of all, that we are loving God. And that one, only when we are seeking to love God will we understand what it means really to love others as ourselves. Jesus is, is here encouraging the type of behavior that is, is to be seen within families and friends. Not just kept amongst family and friends, but to be extended to all. Now you would have no problem sacrificing to help a family member. I think most of us would have the same attitude towards somebody else in the church. But Jesus is here saying that you need to extend this kind of behavior beyond our families, beyond the boundaries of the church, and out into the world. This is radical. It's radical. J.C. Ryle says, We give up and endure more for the sake of showing kindness and avoiding strife. They were to forego even their rights and submit to wrong rather than awaken angry passions and create quarrels. Now, again, within the local church, this does not mean that there is, is no place for lovingly calling someone to repentance. If this person doesn't repent, I bring in a witness. Nor does it mean that there's not a place to bring in legal authorities. But I hope and pray that your enemies are not those in the church. Who is the enemy that you need to love? Probably that person that you are thinking of right now. How are, to you love, how are you to love them? How can you bless them? How can you pray for them? Even if the issue is not resolved, even if they have not repented, you must still love them. And by intentionally seeking to love, even your enemies you will find your love for others growing as well. Even for strangers, when you stretch out your arms wide to embrace even your enemies, you find you will gather many other people close to yourself. 
You would gather people in close enough for you to be able to give them the gospel and to love them by telling them about Jesus. Imagine a church filled with people who love like that. Imagine our church with you loving like that. Well, the golden rule here is presented as, is pivotal because it speaks of our love to enemies and it also contrasts the love that sinners have. Again, Jesus did all of this perfectly, but you can't do any of this, at least not on your own. My final two points here are going to be more brief. First of all, you must love better than sinners. Verses 32 to 34, you must love better than sinners. Well, now Jesus presents three applications of the true disciples' love from the more challenging admonitions in verses 27 to 30. Sinners are able to perform moral, morally good actions. And he lifts up the example of love and asks, that, what is the benefit seeing that sinners love in that way? Now, sinners here refers to people in the world who act pragmatically, whose sinful hearts are still capable of treating others well, so long as that treatment is reciprocated. Jesus is teaching here not obligatory love, not love that requires reciprocation or hinges on reciprocation in any way. As you examine the type of love that sinners have in relation to the golden rule, you can see that they are the ones who treat others the way they are treated. It's reciprocal. They, only, they will only love if they are loved in return. So the first point here, verse 32 if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. So again, Jesus is saying here, do more than sinners. It's very easy for disciples to pat themselves on the back with this perceived virtue that they have in themselves. But Jesus is calling disciples to much more than worldly standards of love. Is the love that you display Simply the same love that sinners display. I find it very easy to treat people well when they're treating me well. But it gets a whole lot harder when they don't treat me the way I think I deserve to be treated. Secondly, if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. So again, the point is do more than sinners. Again, Jesus is moving from the attitude of love into the deeds of love. Again, it's easy to be nice to someone and to do good things for someone who does good things for you. You give a Christmas present to someone who gives you a Christmas present. You have someone over for dinner if they have you over for dinner. But it gets a lot harder when these things are not reciprocated. And it gets a lot harder when somebody is downright mean to you. When somebody is actively treating you poorly. Third point, verse 34. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Now, there's many passages in the Old Testament that speak of, of non-interest loans as being a sign of piety. 
But ge- generosity is really a true expression of love. The true disciple is ultimately motivated by love for God and a desire to glorify Him. And so the, the, the disciple looks for opportunities to give. Have you ever been there, the recipient of, of that kind of love? We have, as a family, by this church again and again and again, this, this kind of love that just showers love. God is glorified in that. We're encouraged. We're built up in that. You have the opportunity to do this for other people, to display the kind of love that is very different from what the world displays, to display love that is far greater than the love of sinners. And finally, verses 35 and 36, you must love like God. You must love like God. Here Jesus summarizes and repeats what he's just said, what he's just commanded in verses 32 to 34. He repeats this threefold love of doing, a threefold idea of love and doing good and giving. And all three need to be done with no thought of, of horizontal reciprocation. You don't do them because of what you can get back from somebody else. You do this knowing that you will receive a blessing from God. When you understand that, that you don't need the blessing from other people because you are receiving blessings showered upon you from God, you are eager to give and give and give of yourself because you know that God will bless you for it. God will often bless you in this life, but always in the life to come. There is real and tangible benefit from loving this way. You aren't doing this selfishly, but it's out of love. And it's also out of faith. If you know who God is, and if you know God, you are confident that He will repay you. You are confident that He blesses those who are lovingly obedient to Him. You know that the best reward of all is God Himself. Jesus here lists three benefits. The infinite reward. The infinite reward. And then the intimate relationship. And the third is that you imitate God. The three blessings. Infinite reward, intimate relationship, and imitate God. Reward and relationship with God are are the outcome. But it's not just that. It's godliness. It's being like God. Verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So first of all, the infinite reward. 1 Corinthians 2.9, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. Now, I don't know about you, but I can imagine some pretty good stuff. And God says... That what he has prepared for his children is far greater than that. It's far greater than that. Now there's people who say that that we we shouldn't be motivated by reward, but I think the scriptures say otherwise. As long as you're motivated by the reward that comes from God. 1 Corinthians 3, for example, talks about, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about about serving God with the, the right motive and in the right way, 
so that uh, the reward that we have will, will be good and gold and silver and precious stones as opposed to wood and hay and stubble. I don't believe there's anything wrong with seeking reward from God. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So this reward that we're seeking is ultimately the eternal reward that we have in God that is promised to us throughout the scriptures. But, but it's an understanding that even we even get to a benefit, enjoy the benefits of some of that reward now. And I experienced that in, 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 a, in a way today that was just, just hugely joyous to me. When I was, I was realizing and that I had, over the past week or so, I begun to let my relationship with God slip a little bit. And, and I, was, I was still praying at, at set times, but, but some of it was going through the motions. And before I realized, I was starting to feel a little bit distant from God. And, and as I went to God, by His grace, the power of His Spirit, in repentance, and just simply calling out to Him, I, I felt some of that reward as the scriptures became more alive to me, as my prayer became more vital. I was experiencing some of the reward from God. And this takes us to the, the next point. The next reward that we look for this is that of, of intimate relationship. Intimate relationship. Verse 35 continues, And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Now Jesus is not here speaking about works-based salvation. This is not something that, that you do. We are adopted into God's family through His election. He has chosen us. We chose Him because He chose us. But the idea here is that, is that the relationship that you have with God is the greatest reward you can receive. Your, your intimacy with God is the greatest blessing that you can receive in this life, let alone in the next. And so this idea here of, of, of a, a distinct reward is, is, is it's in addition to this idea of a, a relationship with God, but, but it's both, and we, we look at both together. Now, part of this means that you reveal yourself to be a child of God in, in doing things that reflect God's character. And this takes us then to the, the, the third point, that of imitating God, where we read in verse 36, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Brothers and sisters, when you are merciful to others, you look like God. When you love someone who does not deserve your love, you look like God. When you love your enemies, you look like God because God is merciful. He gives good gifts. He gives sunshine. He sends rain. Every breath is a mercy from God. Because you are an object of God's mercy. When you extend that mercy to others, you are revealing who you are in Christ. You're revealing what God has done for you. You're revealing that you are no longer what you were. 
You're revealing that you are a child of God. Now, as we think about these things that Jesus, Jesus is commanding here, as we think about, about the, the standard of loving our enemies, being Christ himself, we realize that, that, that we can't do it. We can't do any of it apart from God's grace. And we're recipients of God's grace because we know someone who did it. We know someone who did it all, who obeyed the second commandment perfectly and who also obeyed the first commandment perfectly. Again, we think of, of the example of, of Jesus praying for those who had, who had done this to him from the cross and then Stephen echoing the same thing as he's being stoned to death in Acts chapter 8. This is supernatural love. The man or woman who has experienced the love of God desires to share that love with others. The man who, or woman who has experienced the love of God is able to share that love with others. So when you look at a passage like this, this is a great opportunity for you to, to pray scripture. You look at this command to love your enemies and you can say, Lord, I, I hear what you're saying here, but I don't do this. I know that you want me to love my enemies, but so often I fail. So often I act like the world. So often I, I treat other people the way I've been treated, not the way I have been treated from you. So often I fail even to love my friends and my family. Please forgive me. Please help me. Make this your prayer. He will do this in you. It will be hard. And God might even raise up an enemy or two to help you to rely on him. But it will be well worth it in the end and it will be well worth it even now. God will reward you in the future, but he will also bless you now. He will bless you especially with the relationship with him now. He will also give you the privilege of representing him, of reflecting him to a sinful world, even to those sinners who sin against you. So how did Corey ten Boom forgive that SS guard? How did Corey ten Boom forgive her friends who claimed they had done nothing wrong? She said, and so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the love itself. So how do you love sinners? How do you love enemies? You love them with the love of God. As, as God showers his love upon you, you're able by his grace and for his glory to shower that love upon others. Let me close with the words of Lamentations 3 verses 19 to 33. Again, make this your prayer. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it. It is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. 
The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him, be put, let him put his mouth in the dust that there may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion. According to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, when we see your perfect love, we see our lack. Lord, help us to see your love for us, to rely on your love for us, to be transformed by your love for us through the work of your Holy Spirit in our heart. Lord, help us out of the depths of the love that we have received to love others, even our enemies, so that we can reflect your love and your mercy to a world that so desperately needs it. For in your holy name we pray. Amen.